Welcome to Interruptions Podcast, where we talk to individuals who have dealt with trauma or in interruptions in their personal or professional lives. Because of that interruption, our guests have implemented a program or provided a service for people on a journey towards showing their resiliency. Kathy and I are passionate about our faith, social justice, and the impact on our personal lives and community. During every episode, we talk about actionable advice that you can apply today to reinvent yourself and find the courage to have faith in the midst of your interruption. I am one of your co-hosts, Reverend Odell. And I am Kathy Patton, and welcome. Odell, before we begin, I definitely have to recognize the events of the day and congratulate our new administration, our 46th president, President Joe Biden, and of course, our vice president and my Sora, Kamala Harris. <laughs> Absolutely, which explains why we are wearing our pearls today. Yes. Pearls, earrings, you know, it's like representing. <laughs> um, I watched the inauguration today and I got teary-eyed mm-hmm. just, just seeing her. Um, it was amazing. It was. Uh, it was it was it, it was amazing. So yes, so today was a, a earmark in history. Yes. So and we had no idea when we picked this date that this was going to be inauguration day. I, I guess we wasn't thinking about it. But, but <laughs> well, here it we ended are. Ended up being an awesome day, right? Awesome <laughs> that it day. did. Odell, as you know, this uh, month in January we have dedicated to men. Our podcast has been called A Few Good Men, and I am so excited to welcome our guest this evening, Randy Rogers, who is owner and executive chef of Sisters Cuisine Restaurant in East Harlem, New York. Hi, Randy. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. You know, Randy, I have to say, I've never heard it put that way, executive chef. So are there levels of someone being a chef? I know, I know I'm at the bottom level, but um, (laughs) are there levels of a person being a chef? Yes. So uh, there are levels. It basically just denotes, um, you know, how much time you're actually spending in the kitchen, right? So you have your head chef who is in the kitchen, running the kitchen day in and day out. You have a sous chef who's right below them. And then often you have an executive chef who's maybe the person setting the menu on a broader scheme. He's not going to be there day in and day out. He's going to, you know, create new specials when it comes on on the menu um, and maybe doing things outside of the business, like special events that are associated with the brand in which you're going to be putting your best foot forward. Well, then I guess technically... The amount of time I spent. No, never mind. I'm at the bottom. I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going to try. Okay. (laughs) So, Randy, I understand that you and Odell are cousins. Yes. Yes. Um, Yes. So, Odell is my dad's very close uh, cousin from when they were kids, uh, which makes me Odell's second cousin, I believe, or 
first cousin once removed. I think that's actually the right one. <laughs> I never not. understood the once removed, second, third level cousins. Right. I just always call everyone a cousin. Mm -hmm. um, and your dad is a little older than I am. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> My apologies. My apologies. So, Randy, when you when we talk about family and uh, where we are today, there's a story that I have to tell you that you probably don't know. So your great-grandmother, Minnie Rogers, and my grandmother, Odell, were sisters. Mm. So your great-grandmother lived in Bradenton, Florida, and my grandmother would go visit her every winter. So winters in Boston, she'd leave and she'd go to Florida, and she would stay with your great-grandmother. So as I got a little older, they would send me to Florida and I would end up staying with your great grandmother meeting all my Florida cousins. Mm. And um, so then what happened is that my mother and your grandparents, your father's parents went to school together and hung out together. So when I became 10, I went to California and met your grandparents. That's when I met your father for the first time, uh, your grandfather, was a doctor and he was the only relative that I knew that had a maid. They had a built-in pool, a cement pond, shall I say. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my, my mother sent me out there to broaden my horizon and to meet others and not just be stuck in Boston, but to go out and to see the other parts of the world and other cultures. So then when your father, graduated from Howard, he ends up in an apartment around the corner from Pratt Institute where I was going to school, you know, just my luck, sure. and um, comes to the dorm to hang out for, for a while and decides that I'm wasting my life and that I need to, I'm partying too much, is what he said, and I need to go to a HBCU. And that next year, he took me to Howard University spring break. And that's when I saw all the fraternities and sororities stepping on the yard. I was in D.C. for a week, changed my entire life, and I transferred. So your cousins, Faye, Monique, your aunt Carrie, and myself, and Chucky, all five of us were at Howard at the same time. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I knew I knew he <laughs> had always credited himself with you with you making it there. Yes, uh, but I, I hadn't known um, about you going to stay with Minnie. That's that's awesome. Yeah, the the history of it. And then when my kids got a little older, I would send them, as you know, because you're because you you and Jackie are the same age. They would go to New York, so they would get that New York experience. Mm -hmm. So it's amazing that the generation of support and encouragement and being there for one another still continues with you and I four generations later. We're still doing the same thing because I sent John to you. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and that's why family is you know, so important and can be the bedrock of, of such great things. Yes. That's awesome. Randy, uh, Odell and I discuss on the podcast journeys. And so we talk about as when we were growing up, there were expectations laid on us as you grow up, you go to school, you go to, uh, you graduate high school, go to a good college, uh, and either you meet someone while you're in college or soon after, and you get married, you have a great job, and you have 
the 2.5 children, a dog, a cat, and the white picket fence in front of your house, right? And so I want to hear a little bit about your journey. Tell me where you grew up. Uh, well, I grew up I grew up in, in New York City. Um, I grew up on the Upper West Side mostly. I spent, uh, you know, the later years of high school splitting some of my time between Harlem and the Upper West Side. Uh, but you know that that is where I was reared. Cer certainly, mm -hmm. um, I was very fortunate to get into uh, one of the best public education programs um, in the country when I was about uh, four four years old. So I was very lucky to get into Hunter High School and elementary school. So um, that is where I got uh, my most formative years of education. Um, and then from there, I went on to Tufts University, um, right outside of Boston, for a bit. And I ended up majoring in economics, which was not what I came in for. But to the point of interruptions, things happen. And um, I actually spent a year abroad, or I took some time off, a semester off. Um, and I did some volunteer work in Kenya on the outs outskirts of um, Nairobi. Okay. Uh, in a in a town called Eastley for a bit, uh, but you know I I've, I've I guess I would ask for a little bit more specificity looking for because I certainly have a, uh, a you know a lot I could say about about my upbringing and my education and how I ended up where I am today. Oh, I'm going to go back. Trust me, I want to. <laughs> you kind of <laughs> skimmed over that you grew up on the upper Upper West Side, right? And so, well to do area right so how did did you recognize that you might be different than uh, you talked a lot about family and so you, obviously you were very fortunate to grow up where you did and then you also referenced being fortunate to get in the type of schooling that you did did you recognize at that time that you were fortunate um well it was something that my parents always loved to remind me. Uh, that's <laughs> for sure. Uh, so, and, and, and I think that, uh, you know, I've, I've had a bit of a, a reflexive reaction to that in my, in my later years in life. I think that it's one of the reasons that I, I consider myself not to be very materialistic and things like that is because anytime I did want to ask for anything, my parents reminded me many times that I had asked for it. And anytime anything happened to it, it was uh, to such a degree that I actually ended up not wanting things as much anymore. So I stopped asking for things. I really stopped asking my parents for presents because to me, I was like, if I can't play with it and use it how I want to use it, then it's not even that, of that great a value to me, which I guess is to their point of then, I'm going to spend my hard earned money on it if you're not going to appreciate it that way, which I think we ended up in a good place both ways. Um, I think that certainly, you know, as a happy child in elementary school, I didn't have a good concept of finances and, and what what it was to live in the type of area that I lived in. Um, I was always, and to my parents and especially my father's um, necessity, I was always hyper aware of what it was to be a black man in this world. Um, and sensitivities of that in my community. And so at a very young age, I was gripping with my own identity, the identity of those around me, um, what prejudice looks like. And um, 
you know, we, we can have a conversation about that as well, because I think actually one of the most interesting and most revelatory experiences with me around that as a kid was actually not around prejudice towards me as an African-American, around prejudice towards um, the Jewish community. Um, and so I, if you guys want to take a step back and talk about that, we can. Um, but but so, yes, I mean, I was always hyper aware of being different um, in, in many respects. Um, but in terms of the financial privilege, I don't think I really understood that. Um, That's interesting. I, I don't yeah. think I really understood that until college, probably. Um, right. Again, Hunter's is, is not a private school. So I wasn't going to school with, you know, particularly affluent kids or anything like that. Um, but it was all, you know, m mostly middle class kids who didn't really want for anything. So okay. it's it's interesting that you wasn't aware of your privileges, your financial privileges. I don't know if you, re you, you do remember. Um, when I came to New York, Jackie and John, it was uh, New Year's. And you convinced me that Jackie and John would be okay hanging out in Manhattan with you for New okay. Year's. <laughs> um, your dad was living on where? On what? What? Staten, Roosevelt, Roosevelt. Roosevelt Island. So they had to catch the this tram over into the city. And Jackie was in high school. So John was probably in eighth grade. And Randy's like, oh, Dow, I got him. Trust me. I got it. Okay, I'm trusting cousin Randy. They go hang out and let's say wherever they ended up, they didn't come back. They ended up in Manhattan at, at your mother's house um, because you couldn't get back. You all had too much fun. But the next day, Jackie and John said, Ma, everywhere we went, we got a cab. Randy pulled up a cab cab took us to this house, took us to that house and this apartment and that condo. And for them, that was exciting because that doesn't happen in New Haven. Right. right. <laughs> That's right. You know, and Randy, I want I do want to touch on, too, that you said you went to Tufts University and you majored in economics, That although that wasn't what you wanted to do. What was it that you wanted to do? What did you want to major in? Well, actually, it wasn't what I came in expecting. So I came in actually as a expecting to be a chem major. Um, and so again, like, I don't know, there's so many different ways I could take this conversation. Um, and, and, well, and chemistry, so, cooking, you're putting things together, right? right. But, but really, yeah. What is, so why, why the change? Cause you sound like really surprised at your, your decision. So what, what happened? Well, I, I wasn't, at the end of the day, in retrospect, I'm not so surprised at the decision. Um, at the time, I thought I thought that I had a genuine passion for chemistry and that I really loved it. And I think that I did like it. But in retrospect, what I what I learned was what it really came down to was the teacher. And so in high school, I had an amazing chemistry teacher, which made me want to take an AP chemistry class. And so I ended up taking AP chemistry and ended up doing really good on the SAT2s for chemistry. And so I came in being like, oh, this is sort of my thing. I'm good at chemistry. Now, on the flip side of it, 90% of my other close friends had a very different chemistry teacher. They hate chemistry. They don't want to see the subject chemistry. They, they <laughs> are triggered by hearing about, you know, moles or anything it has to do with molecules. They don't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. And so 
and then so it didn't really sink in until I got to freshman year at college at university and at Tufts University, Chem 1 is on path to pre-med. So they're putting you on a very different type of track and they're trying to weed you out. And so the only chemistry class you can take as a freshman was uh, like 7.30 or 8 a.m. class. And that's the only one. And I'm not an early riser like that. I'm a freshman in college and I'm trying to have a good time. And I got to wake up at seven to to go. And, and let me tell you about this teacher. He was the most monotonous teacher ever. So monotonous in how he spoke. <laughs> My dad came, fell asleep across three desks in that class. Oh, no. And you know my dad's long. He's he's out. He was out. And my dad can't make it through movies. He was he came out and was like, I, I don't know how you can sit through that class. And I was like, see, I don't want to hear nothing when you get my grades for come on. You know, I you just gave us a really good idea for our future podcast in terms of how a teacher can make a difference, right? Oh. And 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 your life decision. But I'm gonna jump back to you. So you went in thinking chemistry, you changed to economics. I mean, what were your dreams and your vision when you went to college, after college? What were your dreams and vision for your life? Um, so when I went in, I had the idea of becoming a patent attorney. So I have always had a bit of a, you know, people call me argumentative, a gift for gab, however you want to describe it. Um, and I had really good scores on in chemistry. It was one of my best grades. Um, and I had done the research or or I had talked to enough lawyers, one of my best friend's father was an attorney, um, to know that one of the most profitable lanes you want to go down is um, is the patent attorney lane right now because there's only going to be more a greater demand for them. It's a very specialized uh, skill set, which means compensation is usually very high. Um, and so, you know, also coming from this, I went to, although it wasn't private school, it was very much of a, a high scholastic pedigree. And everyone is from ninth grade talking about, you know, what Ivy League school you're going to get into. What is, you know, you know, how, how are you going to get into honors this, honors that, so that you can get this high power job in this corner office and, you know, the, the penthouse and all this that, and the other. And so trying to, it was a very easy calculation just about my skill sets. I, many teachers have told me I should be a lawyer and I know that I'm pretty good at this chemistry thing. And I've been told by a prominent attorney that this is a profitable lane to go down. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that's where my head was at. And once I hated chemistry, my in the same type of calculation, I had a lot of friends in engineering. At the time, everyone in school was like, well, that's where you get the highest salary right out of school is in engineering. You can maybe be making six figures. So I thought about going into engineering. A little bit about myself that I realized was that I like to be able to take classes with people, like with my friends, um, so that we can do the homework together. Like I'm, I'm very much a group learner. But because I was already a semester behind all of my friends, I couldn't take any of the same classes with them. Mm -hmm. So I was taking these courses. I wasn't really engaged, wasn't doing the problem sets and the homework, decided I didn't want to do engineering. Um, and then it just, I happened to take an economics class because, um, you know, my father had recommended some, some type of financial literacy classes just regardless of what I was going to leave with. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and my my Act One, my Act Five professor was just awesome, and I loved hearing him talk. Uh, I really got the concept; it, it really applied to me in terms of macroeconomics. I think that my chess background allows me to um, more intuitively see how the market shift in certain ways, which just made a lot of the homework easier than it was for other kids, which I'll take. And uh, and so yeah, the rest was sort of history. That's how I ended up in economics. That's funny. I don't. I, and I don't know whether to ask you or Odell or both of you this next one because it sounds like Odell, um, her her life change came when your father told her that she needed to kind of get out of the school that she was in. She was partying too much. So I, I guess I'll ask both of you what what Adele, do you know what the expectations his father had for for Randy when he left college um, or while he was there? And um, I want to see if it matches what Randy <laughs> thought it was. <laughs> you know, the interesting when I was at Pratt, your I was struggling in economics and uh, your father accounting, your father came down to help me. And but his thing was you're wasting your life here. So because I was a food and nutrition major, which is very different, Randy. So at Howard, he didn't tell me not to take it. He didn't tell me not to take chemistry. He showed me at Howard, which we call Death Valley, um, where all the science classes are. And he says, this is where you're going to be taking most of your classes. So I'm like, okay. my first semester of at Howard in organic chemistry, I lasted three days. That was the class to make or break you. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if you can't pass this uh, chemistry class, organic chem, you're out. And I changed my major. I said, I'm done. I chose food and nutrition versus nutrition and dietetics versus science. I could not handle. And I had to get permission from your dad and every my, my, and my grandmother that I was changing my major. I said, listen, you don't want to see my grades. And I went to my advisor and he was like, there's nothing you can do. Just change your grade. (laughs) So I don't know what his father wanted for his son. Just, I know with fathers and sons, they want their sons to be happy. You know, choose the best route you can, son, just be happy. And it's very different for daughters. Wouldn't you say, Kathy? I would. I would. I do. I do. Um, but Randy, do you get that sense that that's all your father wanted, or did you have a clear picture of expectations? No, I, I would say that 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 is true. Uh, my dad has always been very uh, good uh, about it being about my happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, Beautiful. He he's yeah. always been about that, and and I and I will never forget uh, one something that he said to me a very very long time ago when I was a kid, which was that. Um, the person who loves what they do will never work a day in their life. Um, and, you know, I think a little bit was him, him, you know, softening the blow to be like, I'm banking because I hate it <laughs> and <laughs> without me knowing. But um, a, a lot of it, you know, has, has informed my, my path in many, in many instances in making sure that I'm doing things that I can, I can live with. Uh, I think that many times in my life I have foregone the more profitable path um, and possibly the more logical path for one that I I believed was um, more aligned with my passions and 
more aligned with the lifestyle that I wanted to live. So you're, you're home from, you went to Africa, you said for a year after college? Oh. I, no, so I took a semester off my my sophomore okay. semester off. I, I actually ended up with a um, a rugby injury, which put me on medical leave from school. And I used that time to do volunteer work um, through Alice, which I'm sure you know, Odell. Um, my godmother, um, who is an awesome woman, um, she got me a contact outside of Nairobi. And I had made a, a classmate, a friend in, in school who was Somali and his family, he was actually in a Saley from the Somali civil war. He had a, a lot of family still in Kenya and he was going back to visit some family and do volunteer work anyway. Um, so I basically just piggybacked off of that um, trip it's gonna take. I also did some volunteer work and we explored and did some community work together. Um, and so, yeah, that, I mean, that was definitely one of the most, uh, um, interesting, dangerous, uh, but also, um, evolving experiences of my life. So that's, that sounds wonderful, Randy. And I think I knew that, but I, I forgot you did that. So you graduate Tufts, you leave Boston, and now you're back in Manhattan. Your mom has a restaurant. It's doing well. It's in Harlem. And when, at what point do you decide that this is what you want to do, that you want to work in this, that you want to either work in this restaurant or you want to co-own the restaurant? When did that come to like for you? Well, well, so it, that's not quite how it was going down. So, <laughs> so it, it, it is the middle of college or probably not even the middle of college, probably around freshman year, sophomore year of college. Um, and this is the height of the economic downturn on okay. top of it being maybe not the height, maybe right after the economic downturn, but um, we're still very much in a depression. And on top of that, the community that the restaurant is located in is gentrifying at a very quick rate. Um, and so the restaurant is actually struggling greatly. Um, mm. And so we've been in a financial hole for, for a very long time. Every time I'm home for summer, I'm at the restaurant trying to fix things. Um, and so I came out and Basically, my mom begged me to try and help write the ship, try and help with a, some type of digital presence and to help with customer service in the front. Um, and I was happy to do so because, you know, I've always seen that business as, as our legacy, but I, I had no expectations of being there full time or anything like that. But what ended up happening was, excuse me, um, I realized that a lot of the things that she wanted me to set up, a lot of the structures, especially the digital presence, open was going to open us up to liabilities if we didn't tighten up other parts of the operation, especially okay. the kitchen. I mean, we've always put out a great product, but consistency has always been our biggest problem. And if you don't have, you know, a Google and a Yelp and all of these things, someone comes in and they have a bad experience. Okay, they may tell. Whoever's at the house, they maybe tell one friend, but that's pretty much where it goes. That's that's where it ends. All right. 
right now, someone comes in, they have a bad experience. They post that up on Yelp. They post that up on Google. That is there in perpetuity. I cannot, I cannot lobby those companies to take them down. Those reviews will never, will never go down. Forever Sisters will be correlated with those statements. Um, and so you can't make as many mistakes when you're, when you're asking to put yourself out there like that. Um, and, and, you know, this became a bit of a generational butting of heads. Um, and, you know, I just got to the point where it's like, I'm not going to do this unless I can control it from, from top to bottom. Because it's going to create another problem, and I'm going to have to come in and fix the problem. And I may not even be able to fix this next problem. It, it happens. Um, and so that is where I pivoted to taking over the kitchen as well. Um, and that's where me, an economic nature with no culinary school experience, who just happened to grow up with a passion for cooking, decided that he was going to learn everything. Um, and... I ended up firing the head chef. I became the head chef at that point. And this before we had any executive chefs or anything like this. This is me, my mom, and everybody else is on minimum wage. Um, and uh, and yeah, and so and you know, I don't want I don't want to turn this too much into you know my internal family thing. And me and my mom have had our our ups and downs. Um, but like, let's just leave it at two chefs in the kitchen type thing. And, um, you know, it became, I could never, I could never take away from my mother that she started this business and that she ran it successfully for many, many, many years. Um, but the model that she wanted to run was not one that could any, that could any, that could be profitable, successful any longer. And the type of changes that were necessary were not ones that she was willing to understand fully and adapt. Um, okay. And as a result, um, you know, we, she knew that she, I, I, I gave her many chances by like being walking away and letting her put back in a hole and then coming up and fixing it to the point where I was like, this is the last time I need to, there needs to be legal documents signed because I can't keep wasting my life digging you out of holes that I see coming and I'm telling you, please don't step in. And you're telling me, no, you know better and you don't step in it. Um, and so that's how I ended up where I am. Um, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be able to back up all the talk that I had and been able to keep this business afloat and actually moving forward and growing and getting better than it ever has been. Um, but yes. So, I mean, that's, that's how Randy Rogers ended up in sister's cuisine. Okay. Randy, you are, I knew the story. So yeah, thank you. We, we will not talk about your mother that way because uh, she lives in Danbury, not far from me. And if she sees this on the on, on YouTube. Mom, I do will, love you. I do love she, you. She will come to my house. <laughs> and I love your mom. Um, so you are now owner, you're in Harlem and you are near Red Rooster, Melba, Sylvia's, uh, restaurants, soul food restaurants that have made their mark nationwide. And their chefs had gone culinary school, they were on cooking shows, running cooking shows around the world, um, products everywhere. And here is Randy in Harlem running the restaurant. What, and your, you left the name. 
what mark are you leaving? What, what changes have you made to the restaurant that indicate it's me? It's me, the son that's running it and not my mom. Uh, well, so for me, that's never been a, it's never been something I've been interested in. Um, I, to me, in my mind, it's always been about the legacy. So okay. for me, it's about having the ability to have my grandkids come to this corner and be like, yeah, that's us. We've been here for, for now a hundred years. Um, and that's what it's been about for me. I, I have my hands in a lot of different pots. I have a lot of different projects in my life. And I know that, I mean, I, I, uh, it's an interesting question and, and, I, and, I, and I get where it's coming from, but that, that thought really has never crossed my mind um, as to like how to move the brand more towards me. Um, I have taken my mother out of a lot of the marketing for the, for the business. Mm -hmm. um, just because I think that if you have her there, you want to see her there more. Um, and I don't want people to want something that they can't necessarily have or enjoy. Um, and again, I've always wanted my mom to be more, she is the face of the brand. When, one of the things we got in arguments with was like, I was like, I will do the market. Let me do the business decisions. You could do such good things for the brand by just dressing up like you like and, <laughs> and, and handing out cards. And, and just being yourself, she would not, she didn't want to do it. Um, <laughs> and so it's like, I, I only, so outside of taking her back from certain things, because, you know, if people want to talk to her and she's not around, then they feel some type of way and slighted. But anything around, anything outside of that has been about updating our logo so that we just look more professional, updating our website so that we look more approachable and we have better SEO updating the the channels in which um, we can be found and have uh, revenue streams so that we can do delivery platforms and things like that so we're more resilient when things like covid and things like that come along we want to move into a product line um we're talking about maybe doing a, a licensing agreement so that again just to to make the brand more robust um and, and more lasting um, and, and no part of this is it is it you know Sisters Cuisine by Randy Rogers like you will never see that as like the new you know cupcake by Melissa or whatever like I'm not <laughs> I don't need that um, and, and again a, a lot I think is because I have some other projects working all this nonprofit work all this advocacy work that I do um, you know I'm filled with ideas and so I'm I'm convinced that. Um, I will be remembered for the content of my work and not for myself, my a brand that I create around my name. Okay. So how do you, how do you, I, and, and I know in restaurant you have your competitions. How do you make your mark with Red Rooster and Sylvia's and Melba's? You're, you know, all in walking distance mm -hmm. and, and you, how do you stand out? Do you feel that they're, that you need to compete with them? Do you feel that your product, your food line, your restaurant, your service is unique enough that you don't have to compete? Uh, how does that work for you? Well, I, well, we absolutely are competing. You know, we're, we're, this is a capitalist society and there's only so much money in the market and in Harlem and we're restaurants that are competing for hungry diners um, that are coming to our area to eat and there's only a finite number of them. Um, 
Now, outside of that, I I do not think that, especially like Red Rooster and us, we are not competing for the same niner on the same night, right? So Red Rooster is looking, you're going for a very different experience that night. Um, on a different night when you're looking for something a little bit more casual, a little bit more laid back, we're probably going to pick you up then when you want to have a little bit less of a bill and things like that. Now, we absolutely compete in terms of the quality of our food uh, because all those chefs, they come and eat at us, right? So before Marcus even opened Red Rooster, he was eating at Sisters and, the, you know, it's documented. He loved to talk about how they're one of his favorite spots in the area. Um, and so, I mean, what I do is I make sure that our food stays, this, stays as delicious as it's always been. Um, and everything that new that we do needs to be at that standard. Um, in terms of, and so, you know, our, our food speaks out. When we're invited to any event or anything like that, our food shines. We've been invited to Harlem Meetup every single year. The Harlem Meetup's been a thing. We've been one of the favorite and had the longest lines every single year. And, and you know, this is from the other chefs coming over and asking what we're doing and things like that. Um, I think that, um, you know, so Marcus is coming to, to the restaurant a little bit and he's shown us a lot of love and I always got to appreciate everything that he's done. Um, but in terms of myself, I think that I actually get a lot of love from most of the chefs that are still working, right? So the, I, I find myself to actually be um, pretty close with a lot of the chefs at um, Red Brewster and other small restaurants, not the owners, but a lot of the head chefs. Because okay. there are people who are still in the kitchen. I know a lot of the performers and the artists in the community. And so I think there's, if you're young, if you're being honest with your food, um, if you're, if you know, I'm not one who's out here trying to front and make a big show of it. I, I just, I let my food speak for itself. Um, and when you do that, the quality rings through. So I've, I've I have a question for you. My mother was a chef in New York and, and did catering. Uh, she had her reserve clients on the east side of Manhattan. And I was in culinary. So what I used to enjoy, which I miss, not because of the pandemic, what I used to enjoy was because people knew me from being in culinary, I would go into a restaurant and they would know me. Hey, Odell, how you doing? Oh, they recognize my mother. They'd make sure they give us the best mm -hmm. um, because they knew her or she knew the chef in the kitchen or I would know the chef in the kitchen and I could ask for something special or receive something special. Do you get that? Does, does that happen to you? Yeah, I mean, nothing's better. Nothing's better than that. <laughs> and, and, I'm very, and I'm very fortunate to also get it at, at Red Rooster, which is like everyone wants to go to Red Rooster when they come to Harlem. So like, it is, it, it's very cool. There are a couple of restaurants where, you know, I know the chefs, I know, you know, the, the major D's I'll even at Red Rooster, like I know the band as well. Um, and the bartenders. So yeah, I mean, I give my friends and family, they really get the VIP <laughs> come in, but, but the, of course they're always talking about it to everyone else. Like, Oh my God, you couldn't believe how much love Randy's like the mayor up in there. People coming from across the world. Yeah, and it's it is it is it is awesome, um, and you know that is when Harlem really starts to feel like a village, uh, and, and that's really cool. Okay, um, and it feels great uh, to have that type of community around us, and 
and you know, you, you've got to reciprocate also, you know, and when I see chefs that come in or even artists that come in that I know, it's just like, you got to make sure you take care of them. Got to make sure that they're showing love because, um, you know, it's just a matter of respect in our community. So everybody's working hard, especially when you're in our industry. Everybody knows how hard you're working. Doesn't matter if you're on the line, if you're waiting tables, or if you're singing um, behind the booth. Um, you, you just you're killing yourself in the service industry. So yeah. You gotta, gotta Randy, at at was there ever a point? I know you said that you took a semester off and you went to Africa and you changed your major a couple of times. Um, and you're a young black man. Can it, you mind if I ask you how old you are? I'm 31. 31. Okay, so a lot has happened to you and for you in 31 years. Did you ever find yourself at one point either saying, what am, on earth am I doing? Because I wanted to be an attorney. I want to go in economics. I want to go into chemistry. And now I am cooking in a kitchen. Or did you ever find that because you are 31 and had the upbringing that you did, that, that other people challenged you to say, you don't know what life's about. You don't know struggle. You don't understand what it means to really work for what you have. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. There, some of the darkest times was in the throes of this battle I was having with my mother over this business, um, in which it was struggling. Um, yeah, there were there were many times when I was thinking back on you know having an economics degree and working in a kitchen and um, and just like not understanding or knowing if I was ever going to be able to come to some type of conclusion if this business was going to go under in a matter of months or weeks. Um, and then and where would I be? Uh, and there have always been adults in my life trying to tell me what I should be doing and how I should be doing it better. Uh, I think that a lot of it came down to my experiences uh, when I tried to go into corporate America or go the more traditional route uh, and, and just not enjoying it. I think a lot of it is ingrained, um, you know, bucking of authority, which I've always sort of had from, from a young child. <laughs> but I think that a lot of it, you know, when I thought about it more and more, I think that there are, there's a lot of psychological baggage with being a black man in our society, um, and not just the traditional ones that we talk about, but this um, this sort of specter of potential bias that you live with. Um, in that, yeah. Well, just to take a step back, you know, when I first had the conversation with my with my dad. Um, you know, like I said, I was very fortunate to go to to Hunter Elementary School. So at three, I got into a school for gifted kids. And at three, I was pretty much with this. I've had the same close group of best friends since about then till now. So we went to elementary school and high school together. Most of them are, are uh, Jewish Americans. And uh, one of them, one of them is an adopted Brazilian. And the other one is an Argentine who passes for white. But having this conversation with my father, like, you're not going to be judged the same as them. You have to do better than them. And as a three and four year old, you're sort of like, no, that's not fair. Like, what do you mean? Like, they're, they're in my class with me. Like, we're friends. Like, we're, everything is the same. Like, you, it doesn't really make sense. 
But then eventually, you know, when it's repeated to you enough and you see the dramatic instances that happen that cause you to realize that there really is bias in this world, you're sort of like, okay, oh, it's gonna happen, right? This impending, I'm going to experience injustice. And certainly I've experienced injustice many times in the more traditional route with police and just people looking at you and saying things. But when you get to the professional world, mm -hmm. and again, my dad, this is after having conversations with my dad about leaving banking and the reason that he left was getting passed over for promotions that he didn't think he should have been passed over for, people's nephews getting jobs when they shouldn't be getting jobs, but they just getting it because they're, they're someone's nephew. You enter a corporate world where you're like, okay, you're at the bottom rung. Everyone's at this bottom rung. No one wants to be here. You want some job up there, but to be there, you need to pass up the ranks as quickly as possible. But at any point, you don't know your supervisor and they might just hold you back just cause. And you mm -hmm. may not know why. You may think you put your best foot forward, you killed it, and and you're and they're saying no, you, you're not getting it. Now, the thing that really kills me the most is not knowing if you really didn't do a good enough job, or they're just holding you back because you're black. Mm -hmm. And you that Randy at 31, Kathy and I have experienced all our professional lives. Mm -hmm. um, when I Kathy always worked for the state. When I not not always when I met you, um, she was working for the state of Connecticut, mm -hmm. and there wasn't many people that looked like her in that field. And she would call me and give me advice because I was working in a nonprofit, and she would tell would guide us on how to navigate grant requests how to um, navigate dollars and social services that we needed for the students that we had in our program. And Kathy, I remember one day we were on a grant phone call and you were on it, but they didn't know you were on it. <laughs> and she's texting me, say this, say this, ask this question. No, no, she was on the call, but she was texting me the responses that we needed to give mm -hmm. because they weren't being honest and they were holding back information. And then when I was able to ask certain questions, they were like, oh, okay. You know, they had to come forth because it's, it's, always, it's always been about, always been a challenge. You know, I used to work for Marriott. I was always the only one in the room. Mm -hmm. And that's why I left Marriott up here because they I was always being overlooked for a promotion. Overlooked, always. You know, no, you belong here. You belong in the kitchen. And when I would go to conferences and workshops, I would be the only one in the room. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. yeah. And so it continues. The draw of, um, you know, being able to cook some food for somebody and having to come back to the kitchen and be like, "This is the most delicious thing." Mm -hmm. Good. This is amazing. But just yeah. no middle management. There's me and 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 the stove, and I'm either <laughs> something good or I'm not. And yeah. it's very easy and clear whether or not I'm doing what I need to be doing or if I'm not doing what I need to be doing. And so I think that there was just something very clear cut and comforting about that type of structure. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah. I think that when, when I realized that I could commit myself to this, and even if, you know, with everything else going on, this wasn't going to be everything for me, 
it would allow me to work on what I wanted to work on, allow me to take on nonprofit passions and projects that I didn't need to compensate me immediately that I could put myself into. And again, because I'm working my passion, because I'm working on something I love, it's a lot easier to deal with that type of indecision versus being in real estate or being in banking where it's just like, I'm, I'm a cog in a wheel doing something I hate and I don't even know if I'm doing a good job at it or not. <laughs> Randy, do you find yourself now, um, and I don't, I, I, what's the appropriate way of saying it? Are you particularly political? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm opinionated. Let me, let me, I don't know what, what you mean particularly by political. I, I definitely watch a lot of news. I stay abreast of the topics or of, of daily events or not daily, like weekly annual events. And um, I am very passionate and, and opinionated about what I think should be doing, should be happening. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. I guess. <laughs> No, I, I think that's good. I, and I ask you that because you talked about the struggles of being a young black man. And I know one of our frustrations as mothers of, of um, having a, a son, that it is difficult. One of the things that I get tired of, of, ha of having to have those continual conversations. My son is the same age as you. And so continual conversations of you, you have to be careful. Um, he, he lives in Georgia now. And so as soon as the senator was elected in Georgia, now picking up the phone and having to say, be careful, because you don't know what's going to happen. Be careful where you go. Even when he was here in Connecticut, be careful. Um, always having to have those different types of conversations. And like you, him responding that, well, no, I don't understand. Why do I have to be different? Why can't I go with my friends in this particular town, in this particular area, at this particular time? Why can't I wear a hoodie when I go? My friends are wearing hoodies when they're going shopping. And always getting getting exhausted of having those same types of conversations with um, with my son. And so I can hear it. I asked you that question purposely because I can hear it in your voice. It's not that you're tired of it. You have, you definitely have that level of energy that you're going to continue to talk about, um, go, but you talked about even regentrification in, in Harlem. I can tell you, um, I would say it was, yeah, it was, no, it was more than a year ago because I was on a train. And so it had to be more than a year ago, right? Um, right. My friend and I were, were traveling to uh, New York and we were going to um, one of the famous shoe sales that we were traveling to when we stopped um, in Harlem and I looked out on the platform and I was like, where are we? Like, because it didn't look like us anymore, right? And not recognizing that we're in Harlem and and I saw no person of color on the platform of the train in Harlem. And that's where we went, right? We, we, were, we wanted to go there because we were comfortable being among ourselves and then now going there and seeing, okay, this is just, you almost felt like, you know, now it's, now it's the new game, right? Oh, because one person moved into the neighborhood. Now I have to move into the neighborhood. And it was kind of frustrating. And so um, I appreciate what you're doing with your restaurant. I know it's not easy, the challenges that you have. Randy, I, I was on your Facebook page and I saw a picture where you were invited to paint the letter B and the Black Lives Matter street sign. Yeah. Um, and you were standing there with your fist up and just, you know, Afrocentric hair, so natural, so you. How did you get that invitation and what did it feel like? 
Uh, it felt amazing, and I got it because I am uh, the treasurer uh, of the executive committee of Uptown Grand Central, which is a nonprofit focused on the culturally responsive and responsible development of the East 125th Street Commercial Corridor. And I know that you can tell I've said that many times. Uh, <laughs> Say that again, Randy. Yeah, right. <laughs> so we're focused on the culturally responsive and responsible development of the East 125th Street Commercial Corridor. Okay. Um, and so uh, it, it's an organization that was born out of my Merchants Association, um, which was the New Harlem East Merchants Association. And uh, yeah, and so I was asked to be one of the first board members, and then I was asked to sit as treasurer on our first executive committee, uh, which is now in its it feels like third third year because we have elections coming up. Um, but yes, so we are we are one of the top organizing community organizations in East Harlem. And as a result, we got the the absolute honor to to paint the first B, um, the first ones to paint the B in Black Lives Matter. And I actually got the was bestowed with the honor to be that first painter, which was awesome. Um, and and um, Kathy, I, I just want to mention back to your comment that you know a hundred percent and and uh, to think about how long ago it was that uh, Miss Hamer coined. The, the saying sick and tired of being sick and tired, you know, and that's, that's where we are and we still are. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I, I try, I try and keep up the fight. Um, and I think that again, to my point, the fact that I've, I've seen prejudice in many different forms um, and, and maybe one of the first and most acute ways in which I saw it was, was anti-Semitism to me in, in like a, this very particular way, which allowed me, I mean, and so, I mean, we can we can just have this conversation, I, I think, I guess, maybe. Um, if um, you guys want to go there, I don't know how much time we have left. No, we, we have to hold that for another conversation. No problem. <laughs> okay. No problem. So, so, but I do have a quick question for you. So in this Black Lives Matter, talk about uh, racism and that you're dealing with, how have you dealt with conversations around Black Lives Matter with your diverse group of friends? Have you lost friends because of different opinions, because they're Trump supporters, or they don't understand the uh, issues of, the, of, of, of what's been going on, systemic racism? So have you, how do you, do you have these conversations with your friends or do you not have them? And if so, what's the tension? So I, I haven't found any Trump supporters in my friend group as of yet, which I'm, I'm proud, proud of. Um, I, I, I mean, the conversations come up. They're usually, they're usually, you know, my non-white friends wanting to, you know, have some type of mea culpa conversation to make themselves feel better a lot of the times. And, and, and I usually at some point I'm like, this is what you're trying to do is have some conversation, make yourself feel better. Um, and so, I mean, it happens. I'm always very honest with my friends. Um, and I think that, you know, I've known them for so long that that's what they expect of me. I have not, or at least I don't think that I've lost any friends of yet. <laughs> People who stopped talking to me, but I, I didn't know. Um, and yeah. And so, you know, I, I think that one of the, the things that I said most commonly um, was around things like, um, um, 
uh, I'm sorry. I, uh, who? Um, wow. <laughs> you lose your train of thought, I right? <laughs> but, uh, but basically, well, my problem is I can't remember this gentleman's name. George Floyd, sorry, excuse me. Okay. Uh, okay. George Floyd, there was always this comment of, oh my God, how do you feel about this? Like, how are you now? And I'm like, this is the same as it was yet. Y'all just, y'all saw something. I The same thing has been happening to us. So acting like today is any different than yesterday, I don't know. Maybe it's different for you guys, but we've mm -hmm. been saying this for a long time. And and that's usually where a lot of the conversations end really quickly. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. what? What, that the issue is that you think that something has changed. Correct. That's right. That's right. What about you, Kathy? Have you lost any friends? Because uh, I know you're still working and you're in a diverse work environment. Mm -hmm. Have you lost any friends that you cannot have these conversations with? I'm actually like Randy, not that I know of. Um, <laughs> everyone seems to still be talking to me. However, I work in a very different environment now, and I'm glad you brought up the fact that I worked in the state because when we worked in the state agency, it was no po political talk while you're at work because you could potentially offend someone. And you had the unions that you were dealing with, and then especially if you were in a position of management, and then of course someone's going to say, "Well, my manager or the director said this," and so you had to be walk on eggshells. But now I work in a nonprofit agency agency that encourages conversations. So when the issue happened of George Floyd, they had an open dialogue where everyone who felt like they needed to have a conversation about it came on and was able to voice their opinion. Um, we did a video regarding um, Black Lives Matter, which was a very powerful video as well. And everyone, again, was invited to give their uh, opinion, how they felt. And so a lot of the white coworkers came on and said, you know, either their, their message was, I'm sorry, or I have to be honest, I still don't understand. And so I'm open to anyone that wants to have that type of dialogue. Um, so no, I don't feel, um, I think a lot of people think that I'm very quiet for whatever reason. I don't know why. <laughs> and so um, they feel comfortable in talking about or asking me um, how I feel about different situations or events that have happened, regardless, political, personal. Um, but I, I always share with people that be careful to ask me about something because I'm honest. And so unless you really want to hear my opinion or how I feel about it, because I want to give you that out ahead of time so that you can say, yeah, you know, maybe you're not the person <laughs> that I want to talk to about about this. But no, I don't think um, I've lost uh, friends over that. I think if anything, there's been a great, a greater understanding of how I feel. Um, Odell, have you felt that? Uh, yes and no. Because yeah. uh, I'm on social media a little bit more than you are on a Facebook. A lot more. Yeah, no. A lot more. Because <laughs> I have to. And, you know, it got to the point where if this is how you feel, unfriend me now. Um, because I'm going to make I'm going to make my points. I'm going to speak my mind. I'm going to respond. So I've had classmates from Boston. You know, I, went, I graduated in 1980. So Boston was very racial. So we have classmates from Boston who we refound on social media and someone, I won't mention her name, young lady classmate inboxed me and said, 
I was told not to talk to you because you were angry. She said, but because you're a reverend, I think I wanna ask you my question. And she made a statement about race that at one o'clock in the morning, we was texting each other till three o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I we went in on each other because she didn't see race. She didn't understand why were we glorifying um, George Floyd? Who did, I said, it's not about glorifying. So it became about being the teacher and educating and teaching about systemic racism and what's they have not seen. And I'm not privileged. You are privileged. You're a white privileged woman. You are privileged. Mm -hmm. So teaching that. So we went at least two hours on Facebook and then we decided to agree and not, you know, to agree. We agreed to disagree mm -hmm. and we thanked each other. Pleasant conversation. But there are others who I've had to unfriend because their comments were just okay, I can't do this. And I've unfriended. And somebody that I've known um, blocked me on Facebook because every time he made a post about um, Harris and Biden and going to hell, if you believe in this, if you believe in that, and I would go in on him because you, you don't, you can't use your voice to condemn people. Regardless of what you believe, you cannot use the Bible to condemn people. Mm -hmm. And that's what he was doing. And I would make comments to him. So he ended up blocking me. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Jackie was like, why do you do those things? <laughs> I said, because I don't work. <laughs> and you, it's, I, it's my passion. You know, mm -hmm. don't, mm -hmm. you know, if you're going to put on my page a comment, you must expect me to respond. So mm -hmm. I will respond to you. So, yeah. yes, I have decided, you know, we've agreed your page is your page. Don't make it on mine. And we agreed not to talk about certain topics because we disagree about them. Right. And that's the space that I choose to live in. When I did interruptions, um, people were, how come you're only concerned about communities of color? Mm -hmm. I said, because it's only communities of color that are having the problems that we're having. Mm -hmm. You have access to healthcare. You have access to specialists and trauma doctors. You don't have gun violence as prevalent as you see in our communities. I said, you don't, you don't have the same issues. That's why my focus is on communities of color. Yeah. But Randy, this is about you, not yeah, not, right. But, but that's okay because I'm going to jump back to Randy with that too. But um, <laughs> Randy, I, I have to share with you that I love your energy. Now, whether it's energy because you're 31 years old, but I don't think that that's that's it because not all every 31 year old has your level of energy, right? But I do yeah. love your level of energy, and so running a restaurant, I know that I can't run my kitchen. And so I would not be good at running a restaurant. I'd be out of business within 15 minutes of opening. But um, what do you do for Randy? You, long hours, um, you're open six, seven days a week? Seven um, days. Seven days a week. So, and even when, you, if you're not there that particular day, you have to be there in some presence, right? Yeah. And so I heard about the organizations that you're part of and, and you have friends, you have family. So what do you do for Randy? What's your, your woosah to just say, okay, I have to be quiet for a minute? 
Well, this summer um, I moved into a apartment with a with a garden. So I had my first garden, which was really helpful this summer in terms of just being my little de-stressor when I'm out there um, growing things, which has been great. Um, but, you know, I, I, I probably watch a little bit too much Netflix and things like that. But um, I also, I, I play chess, uh, so I, I get to play with some of my friends. So we play pretty regularly uh, or, you know, have a couple games going on my phone. Um, and, you know, I have my, my girlfriend and my dog. Uh, so between yeah. those things and work, uh, I'm, I'm fairly content. Yeah, good. Because you have to learn to kind of shut your mind down for a minute, right? When, when yeah. I can, it's, uh, it's difficult. I don't need a lot of sleep, which is helpful. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Randy, I remember when I came to New York, your father showed me a second site that you were opening around the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was before the pandemic happened. Um, can you talk to us about what happened? Is, did it open or what happened to that? Well, no, we, didn't, we didn't put another location there yet. I'm using it for storage, um, which was the main reason I, I got this space so that I could scale up and do larger catering operations out of um, the sister location. Okay. Um, I had very luckily found a space with a very nice local um affordable housing developer who was actually the founder of the Merchants Association, which became this nonprofit. Um, and so Nina's amazing. Um, and so she's been very kind uh, with the rent and with allowing the, the top space that I wanted to put another concept in, it has remained empty and pretty much waiting for me to f finish ideating on what I want to do there now that COVID has hit, mm -hmm. um, which I'm in the process of doing. Um, Actually, one of my friends, she just got her first executive chef role at a restaurant that actually then closed a couple months later because of COVID. Mm. So we are probably going to put a concept together that it's going to be delivery only. Okay. Um, and I think we're going to just, it's, I don't know if the name's going to be Harlem Pasta Studio, but it's probably going to be like an Italian Baudrillon pasta concept. Delivery only just to help cover some of the overhead in that space um, and then maybe consider co-locating a couple delivery only concepts like that um, just okay. uh, to pivot towards this new type of market and uh, industry trend you know okay so nice. randy awesome i'm so very proud of you you've done an amazing job um I, it's thank you for sharing your journey with us as well I know that um, Odell was very careful not to share everything that you had discussed about your journey. She wanted me to hear it. And it is amazing. So um, I just appreciate you being with us. What Odell and I try to do is to expose that a life interruption can sometimes be traumatic um, or just an interruption in our lives that can be temporary or it can be permanent. One of the things that we do through our podcast is encourage our listeners that if they feel that they need to seek professional help, that they should do so because uh, we are not counselors and we're not therapists, but we're here to share stories so that people understand that they're not alone when life alters um, and changes their path the way that they're going. 
our podcast uh, for this podcast and our last podcast was focused on men. And we did that purposely because as I shared with Odell and many of our listeners already know, I have a 28 year old daughter who is autistic. And as initially when we found out, I, I took the journey change personally as if I was the only one going through it. And I did forget that my husband was impacted by it as well. And so we've always had those honest and open conversation in our homes. And so we wanted to then share with our audience that men do have trauma in their life. They have changes because when you always talk about it, we always seem to be focused on the women. And so uh, for you to come on and share the changes that you went through, we know is going to help someone else. We will continue to pray for you and Sisters Cuisine. And I cannot wait until COVID is over and Odell is going to drive me there. And she's going to treat me to, to um, dinner when we go. And so I can't wait. <laughs> Both. You don't need to worry about it. It'll be <laughs> Um, It was an absolute pleasure to be here speaking with you both. I look forward to doing it again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to share my story. I hope that you all have a wonderful rest of your week. Well, I'm going to ask you one more question. Odell mentioned you in the production interruptions. You watched it online? Yes. Okay. So I know you were mentioned as as her cousin and that she also talked about how her son, John, went to New York to uh, live with you. And so I know it's difficult for men to really talk about their feelings and how this has really impacted you losing your cousin. But would you be willing to come back on another podcast and and discuss how you felt going through that trauma and why it's it is so difficult for men to talk about their feelings? Uh, I I will do my best. I, I will come up on. I will do my best to express my feelings uh, because, as I've said to Odell, there are things that I uh, am still grappling with and I'm uh, figuring that's out how to do it. Okay, that's good. That's good. Randy, I have a quick question for you. For other college graduates who are graduating college during this pandemic and are coming out, they're looking for, they had their mindset on a particular career or job that because of the pandemic, that job could no longer be there, could look very different or downsizing. And they have to reinvent themselves. They have to think differently. Um, What advice would you give a young person coming out of college, thinking one way and need to adjust and reinvent themselves because of the interruption of this pandemic? Um, I think that one of the first things that you need to be is very honest with yourself um, and get to know yourself. Um, I think that you know, being one of your, being my hardest critic or trying to be one of my hardest um, allows you to be sure when you believe you can do something versus being really optimistic about your own abilities. Um, and I think that a a big part of having or being able to achieve that is also having people around you that you trust and are honest with you, brutally honest with you, whether or not it's good or bad, um, so that you can, you need, or you don't need, but it is incredibly valuable to have a sounding board that you can trust. Um, and, and you know, once you have those two things, you find something new that is achievable and 
you make sure that it's in your wheelhouse of skill sets or in your wheelhouse of things that you can learn. Um, and then you get as much knowledge about how to achieve that as possible. And hopefully you have someone in your life that can shed a little bit of that information with you. If not, and you have someone who can check you on, does it seem like I know what I'm talking about? <laughs> okay, this is what someone who doesn't really talk about looks like. Do I look like them? And, and if not, what's missing? Um, and and so I mean that's that's a big part. You gotta be gotta be really rocking yourself, and you need people around you who aren't gonna sugarcoat things. Because I, I've seen so many people in my life who just they they think they're excuse me they're you know s don't stink and it's like you, no one no one loves you enough to because you've been doing it around you know they're doing it like oh i'm good everybody loves it my friend my, my mama loves it everybody loves it <laughs> they may be saying that to you but if no one in this room's about it something some something's a disconnect to you someone thought it was easier to be like yeah 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 you did great yeah you're good instead of being like yo bro no find something else and you need you need that person who loves you enough to be like, I know it hurts, but this ain't for you. Got um, it. Having right. people like that Thank around you. that yeah. will save you so much pain, so much time, so much effort, so much heartache. And so, I mean, that that's what I would recommend. You find, find a good crew. Be honest with yourself about what you can do and what you can't. Thank, Thank you. you. Randy, again, thank you so much. And to our audience, please remember to like our YouTube channel and share this message because someone you know needs to hear it. And subscribe to our YouTube. Click on subscribe, please. Yes, yes, subscribe. Down there, down there. Right <laughs> it. Down there. Thank you. Thank you, Randy. You're very welcome. <laughs>